Ashley here. Quick note up top, the audio on this one is a little rough in places. My apologies in advance. We conducted the interview while Dr. Santacora was in his backyard, so you might hear some wind and some dogs barking. You know, just imagine you're kicking back in the fresh air. And with that, on with the show. I used to think that depression was easy to spot. I mean, I knew that people with depression were sad and they'd start to skip their favorite activities to stay in bed all day. They'd basically just shut off from the world. But it turns out that depression is so much more complicated than that. Like, depression can make it hard to concentrate. You can be going to work every day like you always do, but you just start to forget things and make silly mistakes. Some people, particularly older people, they might even fall more frequently because they're not paying attention. Depression can make you angry. If you feel hopeless on the inside, you might lay the blame with others, and that can make you lash out at friends and family. And depression can hurt. Studies have shown that people with depression have a decreased tolerance for pain. Your head, your joints, and your whole body might just feel worse overall. And just like there are a lot of different symptoms of depression, there are also a lot of different causes. Causes that scientists haven't fully untangled. In fact, depression is still a pretty big mystery. We can't fully explain why it happens, what's going on in the brain when it does happen, or how exactly therapies and medications help. But one thing we do know is that they do help. And that our treatments for depression are getting better all the time. Despite the fact that those treatments can come from some pretty strange places. Today, we're going to talk about what we do and don't know about depression, why not knowing is actually okay, and why hallucinogens are making their way into the clinic. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. Depression is incredibly common, scarily common. Like, more than 260 million people worldwide are affected by depression. So you'd think this would be an easy thing to answer. What is depression? That is actually a very good question. That's Dr. Gerard Sanacora. 
He's the director of the Yale Depression Research Program and co-director of the Yale Interventional Psychiatry Service. And to him, the question isn't so much what depression is as what it isn't. Depression is an interesting thing that is actually what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. So in medicine, that means that you have a set of symptoms, signs, and we can't find an explanation for it. So for depression, it's typically a set of nine core symptoms related to sleep, appetite, mood, concentration, zest for life, willingness to to live, relating to those general categories that affect your cognition, perception, emotions. And we can't find another explanation for it. So in other words, we can't find an endocrinological problem such as hypothyroidism, or we don't find another neurologic disorder such as Parkinsonism that could be related. According to the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-5, these are the things the symptoms can't be caused by in order for it to be categorized as depression. They can't be caused by a medication or drug abuse, They can't be caused by another medical condition, and they can't be linked with manic episodes or better explained by other psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Up until 2013, they also couldn't be explained by bereavement after the loss of a loved one. But the DSM-5 removed that as an exclusion. That's because grief doesn't exactly protect you from depression, and it can sometimes lead to it. Do we know what does cause it then? I think the big question is, is it an it? Which you said, what causes it? It's probably many different pathophysiological pathways to get to what we call depression. And there's probably many different pathophysiologies, actually physical changes in brain structure, function, that we call depression. So it's very unlikely that it's a single illness or a single disease. It's, it's a disorder that probably is what we call heterogeneous, meaning there's many different ways you can get that diagnosis. Yeah, that that strikes me as strange because you did just say that if it's something that we know isn't endocrine and it isn't like it isn't these other things, but it sounds like it could be a lot of different things. Exactly. So we can tell you that's what a diagnosis of exclusion is. We can tell you what it isn't, but we can't tell you what it is. There are a few risk factors we know can lead to depression, though. Stress at home or at work a traumatic event, isolation, and other stressors can all have an effect. Chronic pain and other ongoing medical symptoms can lead to depression. And then, of course, there are the biological factors. Your brain chemistry, your genetics, and even your personality can all influence your risk of depression. So if depression can be caused by lots of different things, both in your life and in your brain, how do we fix it? For the past five or six decades, the primary types of treatment has been either talk therapy or antidepressant therapies. For the most part, there are neuromodulatory therapies and other types of therapy that's used there too. But those are the predominant, especially as a first step in the treatment of depression. Right. And there are a lot of different types of antidepressants, I understand. So... Yes and no. There are a lot of different antidepressants, or you know, we're talking about oral antidepressant medications. So there are a lot of individual different ones. There are well over two dozen approved antidepressants. 
but they do generally tend to fall in one of a few small categories. The monoaminergic medicines are the ones that go back the furthest uh, of the ones that we currently use, the monoamine oxidase inhibiting drugs uh, or the tricyclic antidepressant drugs. Those really target primarily norepinephrine, serotonin. That was a lot of big words, so let's back up. Monoaminergic medicines target monoamines, which is just an umbrella term for dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. Those are the brain chemicals that are thought to be involved in depression, specifically when you've got low levels of them. It's the job of these chemicals to help brain cells communicate with one another, and when there isn't enough of them, those signals can't get through. So then monoamine oxidase inhibitor drugs block an enzyme called monoamine oxidase, which is responsible for coming in and cleaning up any leftover monoamines once they've done their job. By blocking the enzyme, the drug is believed to keep levels of those feel-good chemicals high. Tricyclic antidepressants do something similar, just in a different way. They keep some of these chemicals, mostly norepinephrine, from being reabsorbed into nerve cells. Like Dr. Sanacora said, these are the drugs that go back the farthest. They've also got a lot of side effects. So these days, they're not the first choice for someone who's new to antidepressants. We've got more options these days. And then the SSRIs that many people heard of that were developed later, the Prozacs and others in that class, uh, are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, inhibit the reuptake of serotonin. Or to put it another way, they keep nerve cells from reabsorbing serotonin in order to maintain high levels in the brain. This sounds a little bit like those tricyclic antidepressants, but these are different. For one thing, tricyclics mostly work on norepinephrine, and SSRIs mostly work on serotonin. And SSRIs are a lot more precise than tricyclic antidepressants. They're better at targeting the receptors that are important, rather than just hitting receptors all over the body and causing unpleasant side effects. Prozac is one kind of SSRI. So most of those drugs, and even many of the versions that have followed after that, really are drugs that either target norepinephrine or serotonin. Uh, And that is the large majority of the medications out there. There are a few other smaller classes that are beginning to develop that actually are targeting different neurotransmitter systems and different mechanisms of action. So do these drugs work? This is a little bit of a loaded question because, in fact, they are quite effective. The medicines do tend to work very well. The struggle is that placebo also works fairly well, too, in the treatment of depression. And it works fairly well in the treatment of a lot of different disorders, even outside of psychiatry. So I personally don't like the term placebo because I think at this point it is laden with a connotation of sort of, it shouldn't have an effect. It's sort of a trick or something where, you know, giving that shouldn't have have benefit. I think the term that is more appropriately used is a nonspecific effect. So we know that, for example, a diet, if you start somebody on a diet, besides the diet, they start to pay a lot more attention to what they're eating. They start to increase exercise. They start to do a lot of other things that 
is an addition. It's non-specific to the type of diet that you give. And it's very much like that with medications or, or any treatment. Once you start to get involved in the treatment, it's not just the pill you're taking. And, and even the pill itself has years of conditioning. So we learned that if we take a pill, our headache goes away. So the next time we have a headache, even just the simple act of taking anything, we're conditioned to have that belief that our headache is going to go away. So you become conditioned to certain things are going to work. So that's part of a placebo response. But there are many other parts of that placebo response that have big effects, like you start to pay more attention to your emotions. You start to think about things differently. And you start to see a therapist or a doctor. So somebody else that is now you can share your concerns and thoughts with. So it's a lot more involved in taking a medicine or, or any form of medical treatment than the simple specific effect of the drug or the surgery or whatever you're getting. It, so it's all those nonspecific effects and they are incredibly powerful. The medicines work quite well if you would just look at people that took medicine and people that didn't take medicine but it's called a weightless type approach where you look at people that started on treatment, people that don't. Where it becomes more difficult to reliably show a difference is when you have a treatment used against the placebo because the nonspecific effects are so large. You need large sample sizes to really show how much benefit the drug has over the nonspecific effects. The danger is I, I really do try to make clear is that you don't get the nonspecific effects unless you take the drug in many cases, or unless you take the treatment, whether it's a drug, whether it's a talk therapy, whether it's whatever, you can't really extract one from the other so clearly. And that that's where things get very complicated. Got it. So when someone just sees the headline that antidepressants work about the same as placebo, there's a lot more going on there. It's much more complicated than you just think like, oh, that just means it doesn't work. Like, that's not what it means. Exactly. And that's where the there's a miscommunication or, or it could be misleading. And it, it's very important. And, and I don't think too many people spend nearly as much time as I do and others looking at this issue. So if you just hear that, I think it's a natural response to say, oh, well, if it doesn't work much better than placebo, then it doesn't work very well. But that's not really what it means. But it does seem like with some drugs, I don't know, for heart conditions, it's like you give the drug and most people have about the same reaction. Maybe maybe I'm oversimplifying, but... I think you're oversimplifying <laughs> much more than you think you are. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that's like the perception, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a misperception. There are relatively high placebo response rates for antihypertensives. They're, they're relatively high wow. sham response rates to surgeries like uh, orthopedic surgeries. The nonspecific effects go well beyond what we typically think of in depression, even things like Parkinson's disease, which you wouldn't imagine would have big nonspecific effects as notorious for very large placebo effects. Dr. Sanacora says that even the experience some people have with antidepressants, where they need to try many different kinds before they find one that works for them, that's pretty similar to hypertension medications. People usually start on, say, a diuretic, and if that doesn't work, they'll try a beta blocker, and on and on. It's very common, especially in the treatment of hypertension, is a good example of that. So the treatment of depression isn't so unique in that way. But antidepressants like these aren't the only options out there. Recently, research has demonstrated real promise for some drugs that I, for one, was told to stay away from in D.A.R.E. class. 
You study a bunch of different therapies for depression, and one of those is ketamine. Like, when I first heard that people were using ketamine to treat depression, I was like, how could that possibly work? Like, that's like a street drug, right? How does that work? So ketamine was originally an anesthetic agent. It was a major breakthrough in the field of anesthesia. And actually, FDA approved in 1970 for as a use of an anesthetic. It really gained a lot of prominence because it's a relatively safe anesthetic that could be used in situations where you weren't able to monitor patients as closely. So in field hospitals, it became very popular in third world countries. It's still a critical drug as a use of an anesthetic. And it's even in the U.S. it's used commonly in pediatric anesthesia or emergency rooms where you need a quick uh, use of an anesthetic. If you're wondering why someone would use an anesthetic illegally, well, it's because ketamine works by putting people in a dissociative state that detaches them from any pain. You can see how that might be desirable outside of the operating room. And that's before you get to its hallucinogenic effects. Again, the layperson may look at this as kind of a street drug, but it has a 50-year history of being considered a critical drug to the world by the World Health Organization. So this is a long medical history, but it still is a pretty unique story that this anesthetic drug would have antidepressant effects. Yeah. And so how, why does it have antidepressant effects? So I... I wish I could tell you exactly why. I can tell you what we why we think it does. And I can tell you why it was initially tested. There was increasing evidence really towards the end of the last millennium, the 1990s or so, that the neurobiology of depression was much more involved than that idea of a chemical imbalance or that there was low serotonin, low norepinephrine levels, which is really where the thinking was in the 1980s, 1990s, we started to realize that the brain was much more complex and there was many other neurotransmitter systems that were involved. And also that the plasticity of the brain, the way the brain can actually change and adapt to different environments and different uh, events in life was very important. And there became increasing evidence that parts of the brain that were predominantly using glutamate, which is the major neurotransmitter in the brain, So about 80% of all your neurons, the cells in your brain, use glutamate as its primary communication, you know, its primary neurotransmitter. So it became increasing that glutamate and GABA, which is the major inhibitory neurotransmitters, that those two neurotransmitters probably have a lot to do with the pathophysiology of depression. As we said, whatever depression is, that broader sense of and the ability to modulate plasticity. One thing we've learned is that stress and trauma can actually change the structure of the brain. Animal studies have found that chronic stress can degrade neurons in parts of the brain responsible for learning, memory, and executive function. Those areas are also smaller with fewer connections in patients with depression. Some of that is probably because of problems with the neurons that deal with glutamate and GABA. So it was at that time some of my colleagues said, yeah, People like uh, John Crystal, Dennis Chong, Rob Berman, and, and others had the idea that ketamine being a drug that specifically targets the glutamate system, what's called the NMDA receptor, which binds to glutamate. The fact that they knew that there was this drug out there that had been used safely for decades had a dramatic effect on this neurotransmitter system. They really followed a pretty simple hypothesis that this may have an effect on people with depression. 
And that was an original study done in the late 1990s, published in 2000, that showed this very rapid onset of effect, which really was a surprise to everybody. I mean, everybody was interested in it, but I don't think anybody, and in fact, I'm sure none of those primary authors, because they, you know, they make it very clear, thought that they would see this rapid improvement within hours that would be sustained for at least days following a treatment. Wow. But because it's an anesthetic, does it, I mean, does it make it so you have, you can't do everyday activities when you're using it? So that that's the other extremely interesting and important point to make with ketamine, especially the early studies with ketamine. So it's not giving at the level that you would use for anesthesia, but it is still given at a level that would dramatically impair your cognition. So you, you at the dose that is being used in those original studies, yes, you do need to be monitored closely and you're not going to be going about your normal daily activities. But the thing that's so unique about it is unlike most other antidepressants where you have to take it all the time, this was something that you take and typically an infusion originally was lasting for about 40 minutes and then you stop it. And ketamine is metabolized very quickly in your body. So it disappears out of your system pretty rapidly. But then the antidepressant effect actually builds over time after you stop it. So the major, the large majority of that time, you're not on the drug that you actually get the benefit, which is again, a, a novel approach and, and really a completely new finding within the field. So is this becoming more widespread or are, are more people using this in just like therapy settings? So it is grown dramatically. And in 2019, the FDA has approved a version of ketamine, which is actually S-ketamine, which is really just half of the natural substance that occurs in what we call racemic ketamine. It's uh, just half of what we would normally find in, in regular ketamine. It was approved for the treatment of patients with treatment-resistant depression. And then more recently, uh, in 2020, was actually approved for patients with depression who also have suicidal ideations. Even though it wasn't FDA approved until 2019, clinics had been using ketamine to treat depression since 2012. And that wasn't illegal. Instead, it was just yet another benefit of a drug that had been used for something else for decades. See, these clinics just used ketamine off-label, the way doctors commonly prescribe an anti-seizure medication for bipolar disorder, or how some musicians I know get beta blockers, a type of blood pressure medication, for stage fright. It's a thing. Using drugs off-label is legal. It just carries some extra risks, since the FDA hasn't determined that the drug is safe and effective for that off-label use. But that was then. So it is now an FDA-approved indicated medicine for depression. But it's not a medicine for everybody, definitely. And it is still a medicine that requires relatively close monitoring, especially in the way that it is being given as of today and according to the FDA regulations and guidance. We talked a lot about ketamine as a game changer, which I really think it was because we were locked into about 50 years of thinking very specifically about how to treat depression. And either with talk therapies or with oral antidepressant medications that primarily targeted serotonin, norepinephrine. I mean, there was always the treatments like ECT that actually predate electroconvulsive therapy that predate 
even the the oral medications. Um, but since that time of ketamine, there's really been an explosion of alternative treatments besides the regular oral antidepressants and uh, talk therapies. There's neurostimulatory therapies like transcranial magnetic stimulation that has really uh, become quite popular. There's uh, vagal nerve stimulation. There's even studies with deep brain stimulation that, that are going on. But then in terms of other pharmacologic treatments, there are several new lines of interest. But the one that I think recently has gained a lot of attention and is extremely interesting to many people is the idea of using drugs uh, such as psilocybin, drugs that fall into this general psychedelic category of drugs. Yep. Ketamine isn't the only dark horse in this race. There's also psilocybin, the active ingredient in what some call magic mushrooms. Yeah, how does psilocybin help with depression? Do we know that? So first of all, we I don't think we can say we know that it does help with depression yet. We're still doing those studies. <laughs> so there are early reports that look very promising, but I always do emphasize these are early reports and you know, we, we really still have to demonstrate that this is an effective treatment in depression. And that really is the first step. And, and that I think many of us are working um, very hard to, to determine you know, what the actual efficacy and obviously the safety of this treatment would be for depression. In terms of if it does work, how it works, there are many different hypotheses. Uh, I think the sort of the mainstream line of thinking about it is that it may work very similar to ketamine. So we think what ketamine would do and quite possibly these psychedelic medications, I mentioned before this idea of neuroplasticity actually altering the way the brain cells communicate with each other uh, and actually even structurally altering the way the brain cells communicate with each other and how they adapt to novel environments and novel events. And it looks like just as ketamine can have these rapid effects on the neurons' ability to communicate with each other, it looks like some of these psychedelic-type medicines like psilocybin may have very similar effects. Now, obviously, these are still hypotheses that need to be tested. And there are other hypotheses. These may have more, more effects that go well beyond the simple brain chemistry or even the neuroplasticity uh, in terms of some of the spiritual side of uh, these drugs and the other effects they may have in social relatedness. So there, there are many different hypotheses. So we really don't know how any of them work for sure, but we are starting to learn quite a bit. Yeah, one thing I've heard is that an idea might be that it gives you more of a sense of oneness with the world and takes you out of your own, like focusing in on your own self. And because depression is, there's a lot of like looking inward that it helps that way. So that is definitely one of the hypotheses that have been proposed. And there's a fair amount of research looking into that. I don't think any of these mechanisms are necessarily exclusive. I think the likelihood is that there's some component of all of these in generating the benefits that are seen. But I do say, you know, the first part is we have to demonstrate to a high degree of certainty that these are effective and safe treatments. We're still at that stage, so. Here's what I didn't realize about depression. Just because we don't fully understand how it works in the brain doesn't mean we can't find better ways to give people relief. You don't have to know how something works to know that it does work. Millions of people suffer from depression. 
And researchers like Dr. Sanacora are constantly making progress toward more effective treatments. And maybe someday we'll know how they work so well. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Thank you to Gerard Santacora for taking the time to talk with me and making me realize that I knew nothing about depression. I mean, I learned so much. If you want a little Easter egg featuring a video that I wrote a while ago about how diet might be a little known influence on depression, no pseudoscience here, promise, sign up for the newsletter. It's at taboosciencesshow newsletter. If you liked the show, please spread the word and tell a friend. There's actually a lot of chatter out in the podcast world about making a show, quote, recommendable. So if you think this one is recommendable, it'd be great if you could, you know, recommend it. Thanks in advance. Well, that's all. The next episode will be in two weeks. Catch you then.